0: Hello everyone, it's G3, and we have a very special edition of Green Marbles for you today. In addition to Geordie, we have, for the first time on the show ever, George Weiss himself. That's the George Weiss, the living legend on Wall Street, the guy whose name is on the door, and who continues to use that door frequently because he remains a steady presence in the office. And in addition to his amazing career, George has great stories to tell about his life outside of Wall Street, some of which we were able to keep in. So please check important disclosures at the end of the episode and get ready to get to know George. And we are recording. Geordie, George Weiss, welcome to Green Marbles. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is fantastic to have you here. This has been a long time coming, and the day has finally arrived. So looking forward to chopping a lot of wood today. But I want to first kind of lay the foundation. Uh, George, you are, in fact, the George Weiss whose name is on the door of the firm, correct? Hopefully. (laughs) It's the same George Weiss. Okay. Because a Google search shows that there's an actor and a Member of the Baseball Hall of Fame who's also named George
1: Weiss. That is correct. That's why I became a Yankee fan as a young man until <laughs> I learned. <laughs> you are a Red Sox fan, right? I'm definitely a Red Sox fan. Okay, we'll have to talk about that as well. Living in New York City <laughs> and going to the old Yankee Stadium with my Red Sox regalia and good seats was not always the most fun experience. <laughs> I
0: can appreciate that. All right, well, let's just talk about your background. For those of our audience who are not familiar with who you are and how you got into the investment business, can you kind of just give us a synopsis of your life story and where it all began?
1: Basically, I was born in Akron, Ohio, grew up in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts. Brookline is supposed to be a nice suburb. There were two parts of it. We were in the part of it that wasn't particularly nice. And at age 11, which was very significant, my mother sent me out to work seven days a week. So I joined the AFL-CIO to work at the Hotel Kenmore. And people think I'm a pretty good athlete, but I never played sports in high school because I was working to, you know, support the family. And what was interesting in, you know, maybe age 13 or 14, they allowed me to wait on the counter at this coffee shop. And this professor of business at Boston University used to come in. And I talked to him and he one day he asked me, what do you want to do in life? I said, I want to go into business. And he said to me, you have to go to the Watton School of Finance. <laughs> the Watton School? The Watton School. <laughs> so at a very young age, I set my goal to go to the Watton School. <laughs> and when I went in high school, I went to Brookline High, which was a very competitive high school. And they start you in freshman year to name your four top choices of where you want to go to school. And I said, Watton, 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 and Watton. And that was my goal. <laughs> Then what was interesting, the, uh, that sort of launched my career. I was in senior. They had a course called Problems of Democracy. And this professor gave us paper money to invest in the market. And I blew the cover off the ball. So I believe my high school yearbook said, you know, Brookline High's answer to Bernard Baruch. But that could be my whole mind playing, <laughs> playing tricks on me. So that launched my career. I went to the Wharton School and ended up in Wall Street. All right. So
0: you went to Watton and it has been said that when you started George Weiss Associates in 1978, I believe, you had only a slide ruler and a notebook. But it also sounded to me, based upon what I have heard, that you had a bit of a chip on your shoulder from some previous experiences you had in financial services that were not so good. Can you explain how it was that you ultimately chose to start this firm?
1: Yeah, let me correct the record. It was a slide rule and a calculator. A slide rule and a calculator. Okay, not a notebook. Not a notebook. Okay. <laughs> Basically, what happened is, so as a young family man. You know, I'd always be concerned given, you know, my background, because I remember I had a goal as a young man to get $10,000 saved up because of your own family background and experience. And so, I, you know, I spent the first six years of my career at Hornblower, Weeks, Hempel, Noise, And The name of the firm was Hornblower, Weeks, and Hempel, and Noise, Noise. Yes. Gotcha. And what was interesting about it is that, you know, I once inquired about our profit sharing plan, retirement plan, and they wouldn't give it to me. And I thought that was kind of strange. They wouldn't give you an answer or they wouldn't give you a retirement plan? Well, they wouldn't give me what's in the profit sharing plan, any of the details of it. And finally, I demanded it, and they sent it to me. And Every IPO that came out that Hornblow got stuck with, they stuck it in the profit-sharing plan. And so I realized after six years, my cumulative retirement savings were actually zero, zero, zero. And, you know, that troubled me. And you know, so that was not a good experience, at least for family security. Then I went to Basian Company. Okay, then, you know, I'm there for six years, basically in institutional sales. Same thing. Looking at my retirement plan. It was zero, zero, zero. You know, that really bothered me. And so that's when I decided you know to open my own firm, to have the ability to retire, which I'm still trying to get from Jordy. Yeah, he, Jordy won't let you. Jordy won't let me. <laughs> He's a slave driver. <laughs> he asked me 20 years ago for
0: five more years. <laughs> now I'm asking for 25. Technology's accelerating. <laughs> so it's interesting. So it was really the fact that you felt like you were not being treated well on the retirement side, which spoke to your lack of wealth creation opportunities that led you to say, screw this, I'm going out on my own. That is correct. Do you think that if you had been lucky enough to find a firm that did offer you some wealth creation opportunities, you would have stayed? And what I'm really trying to get out here is do you think that in your DNA you were always meant to be an entrepreneur or was it more because of circumstances that led you?
1: I believe the latter. I believe it was circumstances because Faulkner was a great firm that had a much better retirement program. But six months after it was there, they took us, Sandy Wild took us over.
0: Well, look, you've been a pretty good entrepreneur all these years. And one of the things that you are noted for is this concept of helping to establish a fund that could make money in any kind of environment. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that came about. Was The concept of a market neutral strategy, always your North Star, or did you stumble onto that because you saw an opportunity in the market that
1: wasn't being met by others? It was not my North Star. There was a gentleman that that was a very bright, very creative guy at Shearson that came up to me once. He said, George, can you short stocks? And I thought to that time, I just run long monies. And they said, sure, I can short stocks. And he said, there's a great demand out there. Okay, so that launched that that idea. And it evolved into creating, the, I believe, the first market neutral strategy. People credit me with that concept. I don't know if there was, a, you know, there's a guy you know, somewhere in the West Coast doing it, but that's what people have credited with me. So it's, it's successful and we still implement that strategy today.
0: So as far as you know, there was nobody else doing that. And you were the one who came up with the first product. Did you feel a sense of like you were taking a risk, like the regulators might not like it or you might not have thought about all of the disclosures that you needed in order to put that product out there?
1: Not at all, because when you look at risk, the risk was opening your own firm. Okay, that was a risk. And with my (laughs) handheld calculator, what I basically did so I knew what my variable costs were. And so I just went through the numbers and I said, if I can come in within 50 grand of what I'm making, reversing the payouts where Merrill took a chance on me and it was a prime broker. And instead of getting a 20% payout and the housekeeping 80%, I was able to reverse those numbers. And the numbers came in. That was the element of risk.
0: Understood. Okay. I want to jump into 2005, which was a very pivotal year for Weiss because... You brought in a gentleman, very handsome gentleman by the name of Geordie Visser. See, George, I told you.
1: (laughs) It's funny. I don't really recollect (laughs) him that way. You
0: don't recollect him that way? Talk to me about the circumstances under which you brought in Geordie. Was it motivated by a desire to potentially find a
1: successor or was that not on your mind at the time? No, that was not on my mind at the time. But what was important, it was risk management. And I remember Jordy and I having two lengthy meetings, both three hours in length. And what I liked about Jordy is, is his integrity, his vision, and just his ethics. And I said, this guy really is a good fit that I think would be you know, very, very helpful in the growth of the firm, and especially on the risk side of the business.
0: I see. So you like Jordy's risk management background. You overlooked the fact that he was a Mets fan and you said, this guy has integrity, let's bring him in.
1: Well, he didn't disclose the Mets fan, but I'm perfectly okay with that. Anybody but the Yankees, the Yankees, or going to Princeton would have been a... Except uh, in 1986. Right. (laughs) So we had this long first meeting and Jordy had phenomenal opportunities to go elsewhere. He comes in for a second three-hour interview. And I said to him, Jordy, why did you decide to accept this? Because those other offers you had away were pretty spectacular. He said, George, I really like your investment vision. I said, Jordy, you got to help me. That was three hours ago.
0: (laughs) You're like, what investment vision, right? (laughs) You got to clue me. I couldn't (laughs) recollect the discussion. I see. So you were trying to figure out why Jordy, wanted to go to weiss as opposed to maybe some of the other places with big names big opportunities big dollars and
1: big long-term
0: contracts gotcha gotcha well rather than just speculate we can ask the man himself right <laughs> so jordy uh, he's been in psychiatric care ever since. <laughs> he's been in psychiatric <laughs> care ever since at one point you had your own fund you got all these opportunities big dollars big numbers What caused you to say, no, I want to join George at Weiss? Well, first of all, I
2: want to change part of the story George said. I didn't come in for an interview. (laughs) Someone reached out to me, who I used to work with at Morgan Stanley, and knew that I was closing my fund up and asked me if I would come over and speak to Weiss. Not necessarily George Weiss, just Weiss, because they were trying to hedge something in their portfolio. They were launching a fund and there was a complex problem. They were trying to figure out and what was going on. So I met with someone who worked for George who then said, I really think you should meet George, but this was kind of almost like a consulting answer basis. But I was interested because honestly, George is a living legend. I had heard a lot about the firm but there was nothing in newspapers, there was nothing you could find about the firm. And so like it is in anything even today, if someone reaches out who I've heard of, who other people have said is either really smart or they're doing something creative, I like to talk to people who are interesting. So I remember coming into George more on a consulting basis. I do remember being there for three hours the first time. He also left out that the second time we spent a lot of time I had flip-flops on and was coming back from Maine. And I was so enamored of his
1: looks, <laughs> I never looked at his feet. <laughs>
2: but the reality was, if it wasn't for George, I wouldn't have come here. He's just a unique individual. We hugged on the first day that I met him at the end of the three hours. And I think I said to you, my father has never hugged me. And it was a very unique moment where I was not only debating about these other jobs... I was debating about leaving the industry and going towards a completely different career path. And so by meeting George, this was a game changer for me. And the culture was what I was interested in. Because remember, I left Morgan Stanley, arguably at the peak of my career there. I was only in my 30s. I had already opened an office for the firm. And I just kind of felt like I needed to be an entrepreneur and not have to deal with a lot of the things I didn't like at bigger companies. This gave me the best of both worlds. It gave me a culture that was already built with people that I really, really liked and a leader who I respected tremendously. And then at the same point, it gave me the chance to work at a smaller place and kind of build a firm that had more of a family feel. So it was a great first meeting, but it was a great time meeting George and and getting to learn more about what he had done in the past. So it sounds like even if you weren't
0: given the offer to join on that first meeting, the karma in the air was such that you knew that there was going to be something here
2: and you were not just going to be friends, you were actually going to work together. We didn't have a plan in place when I joined. I left Morgan Stanley to manage money. I had people that were with me that came with me. And I said to George, my goal has been to manage money. So if I'm going to come here, eventually I want to be managing money. And I'll start in whatever role you think makes sense. And it was initially, it was like, well, there's a perfect fit on the risk side. So you come in and you bring your team. And as we raise money, we'll give you an incubating strategy. And all that worked out extremely well into 2008 and 2009. And I think that was the trust that I had in George. One of the strengths over the years with George and I, and I, I sensed this right away, one, I speak my mind as George knows. So if I have a different view, it doesn't matter that his name is on the door. I'll share that view. And I think that's important when people are running a business. I remember he wanted me part of the executive committee because he thought I thought differently than people, which again is a great mark of someone who wants to build a firm that's strong Is you need differences of opinions. And I think George appreciated that. But one of the most important things, which I've mentioned to him, I have a natural distrust of people when I meet them first, and George is more open to trusting people initially. And I think that's come up really well when we interviewed people, we met people, is I start from not trusting them. George starts with trusting them. And it's a very powerful combination when you're building out a firm to have that kind of skepticism, but also the trust. It's very good for the culture, and I think it's very good for us kind of working together. If we agree on someone, it's usually a really, really good decision.
1: I would agree with that. We've had some very interesting showing interviews. And I remember one gentleman came in with a great background in investment, very high you know, performance numbers. And my assistant at the time, Marie, came in said, would you like anything to drink? He said, I'd like a glass of water. And she came back with the water and he didn't thank her. And both Jordy and I looked at each other, didn't offer them the job. So there's something about the firm that's a little naive, that's a little old fashioned, but it's about manners.
2: That that person was Ken Griffin, so we were both
0: wrong. Really? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, I was was going to say it. You could call it old-fashioned, but you could call it timeless. And I have found that it's often in the little things that people do or don't do where you see the tells as to the nature of their character. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. One thing I just have to ask you before we talk about the more modern era of how you all run the firm, I just have to ask you this question because you are a huge booster of Penn. Not a day goes by probably where you're not in some way interacting with the University of Pennsylvania and or Watton. You love the place. It had an incredibly important impact in your life and the trajectory of your life. And I'm just wondering in that initial meeting, did Jordy give you his views on college? Not that I recollect your honor, your honor, Right. (laughs) But it is funny because I joke about how you're a Red Sox fan. Jordy is a Mets fan and the like. But I also think about the fact that, you know, you have done an enormous amount to advance education opportunities. And Jordy has a love of learning, but the vehicle of college is not the one that he subscribes to. And so it's interesting how you guys can have disagreements and different perspectives, but that doesn't get in the way of the chemistry between the two of you. Jody
1: has a unique skill set. Okay, yep. firstly, I think he has the best vision of any person that I've met in Wall Street, and but he looks at the world differently. In some of these interviewing processes, he starts talking about, "Talk to me about your father. Talk to me about your mother." <laughs> he analyzes these, you know, candidates, which is something that I never did. And but Jody has that skill set that he's a survivor. Okay, with a great intellect. So he's going to make it no matter where he goes. When you look at my inner city foundation, say, as education with 169,000 kids, they need that structure because the choice is the street. Okay. And if you can give them a way out of that street, then you have a chance of success. I haven't run into too many Geordies in my inner city kids, thankfully. Well,
0: right. <laughs> you don't bump into Geordies a lot in general. All right. Well, let's talk about the firm today. How do you all... Divide and conquer when it comes to your responsibilities. And I'm sure that has morphed over time. Can you talk about the way it is today and then talk about how that has morphed over time?
1: Basically, yeah, Jordy's the decision maker. Okay. He's not only the president, but the chief investment officer. And what he basically says goes. I'd liken myself to more of a Vegas greeter,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Don Rickles of the firm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a little bit of that. And, you no, know, but literally the PM's answer to Jordy, everybody answers to Jordy. And he does a great job and he has great vision and a great energy. And uh, it's one thing, you know, that I learned over time with Jordy is you start recognizing these skill sets. And the more you give him, the better. And he's like an amoeba. He just keeps growing and <laughs> occupying more space. But, no, might be the best
0: in the business. He's the best in the business and he is amoeba-like all at once. Yes. So, Jordy, you want to take a crack at that? And are you okay with the characterization as amoeba?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'll take anything George throws at me. It's fine. I do want to add on George's responsibilities. This gets important when you've got, again, a firm with such a strong culture. People don't want to let George down. I mean, that is a very powerful, emotional thing for people. And I feel it all the time. There's people that have been here and that goes a long way when you're building out a business, especially one where the question I get asked most of the time is, how do you compete for talent? Well, one of the ways I compete for talent is George Weiss. People know him. He's built this legacy that is a culture that people can trust that he mentioned the integrity part. I joined for all those reasons at the beginning But there's a lot of people that have joined this firm and maybe they knew myself and they came on. But the people that I've known that have been here the longest, we've had Mike on here. We've had Lundy. Lundy and I have known each other since the 1990s at our time at Morgan Stanley. And Lundy may have joined because I called him up and said, hey, this is an opportunity to join. But he came and met George. He loved George. And Lundy and I have the same ethics and morals and care about people and teams and leadership. There's a lot of athletes here. And I think people that are competitive want to work for someone who is a Black belt in Taekwondo, who seventh degree. I know we're getting back to that. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to shortchange you. Plus we'll probably spend an hour on that at the end. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why George's responsibilities go into this, but also his Rolodex, as I've said, is massive. And so I've spent time with Michael Milken and some of the most amazing conversations that I've ever had. He's opened doors for me on, Learning about cancer, nanotechnology, a lot of the inspiration I have for the technology thing comes from him being able to call people and open doors for me. So George's ability to help the firm goes far beyond the investment process. And I might be spending on the nitty gritty, but the stuff that he's there, I make a phone call and doors open. So he goes a long way towards being the glue of the firm and continuing to help. And I think even if it was just his name on his door and people saw him once a month, it would still have the same impact. But people see him much more than once a month. They see him a lot for, more than unfortunately. once. <laughs> he says that, but let me just tell you something. The day that he's not needed to be, he's still going to be here. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Are you Are going to play with your fish all day?
1: Yeah, actually, it was. You know, I had an opportunity to be an assistant football coach at Penn. You did? For a dollar a year, and I held out for two, and it broke down and negotiated. Did you really have that opportunity? I did have that opportunity. Were you tempted? Very tempted. <laughs> wow. I think a
2: great podcast, by the way, would be on George's slight misses i think his stories about what he had the opportunity whether it was owning the patriots whether it was working for the white house whether it was who he could have been dating all kinds of stuff these stories on the what he could have done i've often said he's the forrest gump of the investment okay this is not
0: in the script but you can't tease that without talking a little bit about that let's start with the patriots when could you have
1: bought the patriots the Patriots were offered to me, like, just before Bob Craft, I think, roughly. And Chuck
0: year. Sullivan, I believe, was the owner of the Patriots then? No,
1: Victor Kayyem.
0: Victor Kayyem, the Remington micro yes, guy. Yes,
1: yes. And they invited me to watch the Jets play the Patriots at you know, whatever the old stadium was called. And it was offered to me at $88 million. And I thought about it for a day, maybe even a half a day. And I said, I give my Saturdays to Penn Football I don't want to give up my Sundays. So Bob Kraft, you know, he but he had to rent Gillette Stadium from him. So there was still you know some hurdle to get over. And Bob Kraft went to the same high school I went to, and he's two years older. And every once in a while I run into him, and I, he gives me a little jab. And <laughs> the uh, is uh, Warren Buffett says the Patriots are not worth four billion dollars. A billion there, being there, it starts that up. <laughs> wow. That is something. But I don't regret it because you had to sacrifice your family. And that was was too important to me. Right. And you didn't want to sacrifice Penn. (laughs) That would never have been an option. That would not have been an option. We can um,
0: not include the following if you don't like the way the answer comes out. But who did you have an opportunity
1: to date? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who could you be referring to? Candace Bergen?
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is your life, not mine.
1: (laughs) So uh, So he has to be referring to Candace Bergen. When I was a Penn and rowing crew, we had an opportunity because the, the coach thought with me rowing we could win the gold medal in Tokyo in 1964. And unfortunately, I hurt my back and and hospitalized. And it always frustrated me because Penn didn't win a race after that. And so a fraternity brother of mine was in the, you know came to see me. And Candace Bergen was a movie star, okay. You know Murphy Brown, okay, and she was on the, the cover of Vogue, etc. Says, do you want to meet her? So she comes in and she happened to have mono. So she was, you know, somewhere in the same hospital complex. So when I was better, we decided to go. <laughs> is this is what you're referring to, Jordy. We decided to go out to at a date. Now, once again, I was poor at Penn. Okay, my parents would send me like a $100 sometimes every semester or sometimes just once a year. So that we go out on the date, and she starts talking about George Hamilton came in the previous weekend. They went up to New York and, you know, did the town. And she says, where are we going for dinner? And I gave her half my, you know, dinner, which was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it was probably the worst date I ever had in my life. And so I've been kicking my butt for all these years. <laughs> what could have, would have, should have happened. And I ran into her not too long ago. She was sitting in, you know, two rows in front of me in the opera house. And I was going to say something, but I figured... Why it could have turned into an embarrassing situation, especially once you forgot me.
0: Let bygones, big bygones was probably the right approach there. What a fascinating story, though. Yeah,
1: but I assume that's the one Jordy is referring. Well, I don't know.
0: Maybe there are others. But speaking of things of beauty, the leadership transition of this firm, You want to
1: change your words there.
0: (laughs) I think it's a thing of beauty. This was my careful transition back to a, a more serious topic. What I was going to mention is that the way in which you have transitioned from the leadership that you helmed for quite some time to Jordy is not something that should be taken for granted, because as you well know, Wall Street is littered with firms that couldn't hand the baton of leadership to the next generation. And before we talk about your Taekwondo experience, which I do wanna make sure we cover, I wanna ask both of you if you could offer up some insight because we have RIAs all over this country, we have asset managers all over this country that stay up at night not knowing exactly how to pass the baton. And what you did is really something to be noted what insights do you have on that?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting because over the years, many people had told me that I had to plan for that. And you go to different conferences, you talk to different people, and it's a very, very, very difficult thing. And in Jordy's case, it was really an easy transition because his competence and confidence were so strong. And my confidence in him as a leader, literally there was no adjutor in this transition at all. It wasn't perfect, but literally my confidence in him is a hundred percent. So it's really entrusting the firm to him was really a non-issue as far
0: as I'm concerned. But Jordy, George had all these people who worked for him, who were loyal to him. And now all of a sudden, as your reputation and standing when the firm goes up, it's clear that there is a leadership change afoot. How did you go about making sure that all of these people who had worked for George all these years felt good about working for you?
2: This is something that you can redirect back towards George after I say, cause we've never spoken about this, but I think this comes in honestly with both of our love of sports and the way that we try to recruit people in general, you need to have a group of people that are working for the same team. And if they love the team, And in this case, yeah, they were recruited by George, but these are great team players. And I think whatever people we had at the firm that were more interested in themselves, they eventually didn't last here. Not necessarily because we said, you're not doing this right, but because they just didn't feel in place. Because this is an industry where a lot of people are out for themselves. And I came to this place because I felt the family atmosphere, but rather than say family, it's You've got a lot of athletes here that care about the teams and George personally could take you through some of the people that have been here a long time, how they were on the Penn football team, how they were on different places. I can do the same thing with the people that have come here that I've known about. We have a lot of athletes here that were captains on their teams. When you're drafting players for the NFL, one of the qualities they look for, were you the captain? Were you not the captain? There's a big thing of just trying to find people that care about the name that's on their jersey. More than they care, as the Herb Brooks movie was, the name on the front is much more important than the name on the back. And I think we just have a lot of people here that fit that mold.
1: The other thing that I think made the transition easy is that Jordy spent so much time with the PMs. And the PMs are obviously the guys that drive the profits of the, the firm. And they had the utmost respect for Jordy. So that was that's where your biggest risk is. Your operational people probably don't interact too much with Jordy. Okay, but the key drivers of the firm interacted with them all the time. And if they didn't like that transition, they would have left because I became their, you know, their boss as head of the portfolio managers.
0: Under Geordie's leadership, the firm obviously has expanded and there is undoubtedly a natural movement to have culture change over time. As you look at the firm today, bigger firm, more people and the like additional strategies and you contrast it to the way the firm was before Jordy was here, do you ever have to pinch yourself and say, my goodness, look at how much it's grown or has it pretty much played out the way you thought it would given your respect for Jordy and his skills?
1: I really probably don't think that way. So it's evolved to a way that I'm very pleased with and the quality of the people that work here. And I think the culture, I was worried about when you expand, will the culture change? And I can honestly say that there's probably, you know, one person the investment team that probably doesn't fit to the culture. So that was pleasing. Was not as pleasing because of COVID, a lot of those key people that were a good part of the culture are not in the state anymore. They're working remotely. And so that troubles me going forward because... When you have new teams coming in, you you don't learn culture by osmosis. The old guys, you know, have a lot of experience and a ground of love for the firm. And I think there's a lot of loyalty developing in the new teams. Just it, it worries me a little bit because they don't interact with the original people in the firm.
0: It is a challenge, right? Balancing the new ways in which people work with the idea of nothing beats IRL interactions, in real life interactions. And there is a, a fundamental
1: tension there. Judy, you can speak to this better than I, but each of the teams individually, there's 23, 24 teams, they're doing a very good job individually, but you don't see, or at least I don't see the teams interacting with each other. Now, obviously more that goes on, but you just don't have people going to the coffee machine and just chatting about something.
0: Well, one of the things that really sort of served as a good lesson for me in your support, though, for the culture of this firm evolving in time was when Jordy masterminded the Weiss NFT drop that we did. And I remember being in a meeting with the two of you and Laura where we were talking about that. And it was very clear that you thought this whole NFT thing was nonsense, but you knew that the other people in the room thought that tokenization and the blockchain was an important innovation. And by the way, I believe you are the first major executive from a Wall Street firm whose image has now been permanently placed on the blockchain and memorialized forevermore. So...
1: Yes, and unfortunately, my tie came out in Princeton colors. (laughs) It's told to me by the two, three Princeton guys that work here. So they were very pleased with that image.
0: They were very pleased with that image. Well, look, notwithstanding the Princeton orange, you went along in that with a great attitude, even though you had reservations about it. And that, to me, really spoke to the fact that if the gentleman sitting to your right thinks it's a good idea to do this, You're going
1: to trust him. Yes, I'm very cognizant of what I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. That is a key thing as well, I think.
1: I thank you for helping me buy that NFT from Penn Medicine on the uh, MNRA. And we still can't figure out how to use it.
0: Do you want to just briefly explain what you're referring to there?
1: Yes. I'm an art collector and Christie's sent out this blurb that Penn Medicine, the mRNA that's helped develop the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, the science was invented at Penn, so Penn, unbeknownst to me, it spent a year, okay, thinking about doing an NFT, and so it, you know, came on Christie's at auction, and I told my assistant, who's head of my foundation, Rachel, said, "Let's keep an eye on this, because the one thing I don't want to do is have Penn get embarrassed that I want an NFT." F- your ears, yes, but for my logic, absolutely not. <laughs> And so it came up for sale at Christie's and the starting bid was 50 grand. And I was out in California and Rachel really gets into these things. So she said, let's put a hundred thousand dollar limit on it. Okay. We ended up paying $225,000 for this and we got the winning bid. And then my ex-wife who was very excited when we bought 10 to seven pieces of, of art at auction and she was really proud of that. And one of her girlfriends says, well, if you do something stupid, you can win every time. <laughs> so then they send me a text saying, you're going to pay your Bitcoin. I said, I don't do Bitcoin. Then they say, what's your digital wallet? I said, I don't know what a digital wallet <laughs> is. And I did it But the interesting thing about it is Penn was so delighted that I bought it because they were concerned that if the wrong person would use it, they could use the image. And literally, I've got three calls from the highest people at Penn saying how excited it. Is. And Drew Weissman wants to uh, meet me and thank me personally for doing this. I said, listen, anytime you want it back, I'll donate. <laughs> now, that is a use case for
0: NFTs. And I would add, by the way, you should feel good about the fact that your NFT collection has held up a lot better than mine. I just want you to know.
1: <laughs> I have read something about that, but I was too polite to ask.
0: No, it's OK. All right. Well. Before we end, I just want to say up front that your philanthropic activities have been legendary. Poor kids seeking an education through Say Yes. The American Life Sciences community owes you an incredible debt of gratitude. Penn, of course, does. The State of Israel has benefited enormously by your generosity. You have done a lot just based upon everything that I've just described. And yet, on top of all of that, my understanding is you are a former Olympian and that... And that's special. And that is very special. And that you competed in the Olympics 18 years ago. Is that correct?
1: A little bit of background is that I started in martial arts at age 48, Rich Camizio, who's been a partner of this firm 30 odd years. And after I, you know, because I had, it, it turns out I was diagnosed with a broken back. In the 80s, and I was an invalid for like five, six years using a cane and a back brace. And what was interesting is I did massive physical therapy for a year, three hours a day, seven days a week. Cosmo, Rich Comizio Cosmo, we call him, sat down with me and said, Do you want to try Tai Chi? And the doctors thought that would be a great idea. So he introduced me to John Pillay, whose now title is called Kaichi, which is a founding of a martial art. And then I started with Tai Chi at age 48, and that morphed because it wasn't very competitive. That morphed into, you know, three months later, Taekwondo, when I'm getting kicked in the head. And that seems to be a place that I'm more comfortable <laughs> in. So I worked hard, got through you know my first degree, et cetera. So
0: how old were you when you got your first degree black belt? I believe that was four years after, so age,
1: you know, 50,
0: 52 probably. Okay, so you're 52 years old. You have earned your first black belt degree after having spent several years using a cane because your back problems were so bad, obviously Tai Chi first and then Taekwondo helped you with your back. So now you can walk around and function in a much more normal way. And you've got a black belt under your belt at 52. That's correct. Okay. Then what happens?
1: What's interesting is my skill level developed. I'd compete in tournaments, but they were always very local and based in Connecticut. And I remember this Master Kim, who was a 20-year-old from, I believe it was, Kakistan. Pac- it was Pakistan. Pakistan? Yeah, Pakistan. K- 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 one of the former or- Yeah, one of, k- one of the stands. K- k- of Kazakhstan, of the stands, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the, he was a world champion. And Mr. Pillay said to me, I want you to compete, but I want you in a senior division. I said, I don't do senior division. So I competed against him and he won the gold and I won the bronze. And frankly, there was much bigger difference in the placement. He was that talented. And then afterwards he comes up to me, which in martial arts was in the Asian culture was more a compliment than U S and he says through his interpreter, he's honored to compete with somebody of my age. Now, that's an insult in the U.S., but in Asian culture, that's a compliment. And I don't know how it happened, but literally in 2002, I got an invitation to join the U.S. national team. I don't know how that started, okay? And, you know, maybe it was that tournament I was in. I honestly don't know the beginning of it. So I get elected to the U.S. team and then you have to by all, train three to six hours a day, which was difficult because, you know, you did it after the market closed. And he swear to do it for you know six days a week. And we also swore that we wouldn't take alcohol. And Jordy's trying to break me of that habit. But he's doing pretty well because every time I get a gift of a bottle, it ends up on his desk. So he stopped complaining about that. But And what was interesting is I went down to Cancun, Mexico, and there were 800 athletes from around the world. And they did honor, in the opening night ceremonies, seven or eight distinguished martial artists, including my master, at that time Master Pele. So trying to get 800 athletes to train and having the space to train for an hour, an hour and a half, we broke into the training center like 5, 5.30 in the morning. And suddenly this guy comes up because, you know, it's obviously not paid for by the U.S. government. This guy comes up, introduces himself as the captain of the U.S. team. And said to Kaicho my Korean title at that time was Shihan, which is Master Instructor with Shihan Weiss, considering doing an open eye demonstration with seven other Americans and obviously people from other countries. So the polite thing to do is I asked my master, would that honor you? And he said, yes. So I go there, and I'm at the back of the stage, feeling like Forrest Gump, saying, how do I always get into these situations and get all these world-class athletes, and I'm demonstrating my skill. I love Kaito, but he's the worst psychologist. As good as Jordy is, Kaito's on the flip (laughs) side of this. He comes up to me and he says, George, you get out there, you do a good job, you're going to psych out your competition. You do a terrible job and your tournament's over. So I apparently did a pretty good job and a long staff. But what pleased me is I got treated as a world class athlete. And it took the frustration about getting hurt in 1964. And, you know, literally that was a great feeling. The thing that, the only thing that disturbed me is everybody in martial arts, it's about respect. Somebody did a good job that I was competing with them. I'd go up and, you know, compliment, but it was never reversed. There was no USA, USA type of feeling because everybody was competing for a slot and the Olympic team. And there's in the U S there's three different Taekwondo federations and the ITF, which is the International Taekwondo Federation is the one where you can go and represent the United States. So we were in that federation. I earned three slots to try for the gold. Mr. Play did not like the politics that went on and asked us to resign as a school. And You honor what your master does, which created a huge political situation. The ITF went before the OIC, which is the International Olympic Committee, and said, if you may remember Greece, we were supposed to say in the Olympic Village. And they were way behind in construction. So what they suggested to the IOC is the group like ourselves that would no longer compete in a demonstration sport, August 18th, which was the first full day of the Olympics. And but not to compete for gold, to compete in a demonstration sport and to march in with the athletes so we did that and they asked us to do it because they didn't have room as to come and do it a few days earlier. So it's a little bit like Bob Eucher, you know, where the hell is everybody? So we competed and that was not as, as exciting because the judging wasn't an anti-American in the first event. I got a, a 985, a 985, a 915, a 925, and then a 98. What they did is they had six finalists. I was one of the sixth and I came in fourth. And Mr. Play, the one thing, you know, that I always look for in an athlete, it said to me, you never had a better day of practice than you've had here at the Olympics. And he's not one for compliments. So that made a lot. The second event, they came out with the same judges and two of them. It was really a style issue. You know, Taekwondo and Karate are very strong. Two of the judges like the softer arts. So the, the same judges come out. So I come in fifth in the second round. The third one where I'm defending, you know, world champion and the long staff, which is that six-foot wooden staff, I come out, and the same damn judges come out, and my heart just sank. And I said to kaicho which says, I'm not one to do, he said, Kaicho I'd like to bow out. He says, you cannot bow out. and But I knew I had no shot, and I've seen the, the video of it. And I got sixth place, and I deserve sixth place. But I, and I as Judy knows, I don't get angry too often. But I took my long staff and smacked it against the <laughs> wall, and the judges jumped up, which was really not my style. And then the chief judge of the tournament came up to me two days later and said, Sheehan, you deserve two medals, and which obviously I didn't get. Wow. That is quite a story. Yeah, my goal was to come back with three goals. <laughs> but it sounds like... But the good news is I was
0: able to get through the metal detectors. (laughs) You were able to get through the metal detectors, and you always have that memory. What's next on your list? Judo? Karate? What's next? (laughs) Staying alive. Staying alive. Well, you look great. And I have a sense that Jordy was somewhat helpful in getting you into uh, peak physical
1: health, right? What Jordy does, that he's very consistent, Nick Morris is of the same ilk, is to eat healthy, be healthy, and think healthy. And yes, he did influence me.
0: You forgot one. What was that? That would be sleep healthy. And so I'm going to end by asking you what your sleep score was last night. 92. And Jordy, what was yours? <laughs> 91. I was an 84. I would say, you know, I'm not great at math. That means that the average here was about 87. Not too bad. Not too bad. It has been an honor. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Please come back again. Okay, Julie and I are going to open up Broadway in February. <laughs> <laughs> I look well,
2: forward to that. I have seen George sing once. I have a video on my oh, phone no. oh, from 2013. I attended the final game of the Red Sox Cardinals World Series. The Mets haven't been in since I could afford to go to a World Series game. So I've been at three Yankees final games, one Cardinal in St. Louis and one Red Sox. And he was with his buddy Nick. And Sweet Caroline came on and... They're singing along and I'm videotaping it and he's looking at me and this is 2013. George did not have an iPhone at this point. It took him a little while to figure
1: out I was videotaping. And finally on the camera, he goes, I think he's videotaping this. So. Oh, he sent it to me again because now I know how to store them. Okay. And they, uh, yeah, that was quite a series. I think we should store it on the blockchain forevermore. What do you think? I, I think that'd be an excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Whatever, whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that means. Thank you so much, gentlemen. This is great. Thanks, G3.
3: This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast Should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.